welcome to another episode of The Artiste, where we delve into the lives and the craft of artistes. I'm your host, Luke Gibson. Today, I'm really excited to introduce my guest, who spent close to 25 years as casting director on Neighbours, discovering so much new Australian talent, and is responsible for launching the careers of countless actors. But this is just a small part of her extraordinary life. Welcome to the show, Jan Russ. Well, thank you, Luke. How uh, lovely now, I've got to, to start here. off by saying, talk to me about your Ian Smith friendship. And, and for people that don't know that name off the top of their heads. Harold you know, Bishop. Harold Bishop from Neighbours. That's exactly Absolutely. right. Talk, yeah. talk to me about how your friendship first started with him. Well, I first met Ian... Um, I was a J.C. Williamson girl, in case you didn't know, which Mm. was the um, big musical theatre company here in Australia for many, many years. Mm. He was doing a show called Fiddler on the Roof. Right. And was he playing the lead role? No, he wasn't (laughs) playing the lead role. No, he was only a young, young youngish one at the time. And what what role were you playing? And I came into the company Mm. uh, to go into the company initially. um, As I understudied, I was in the show, but I understudied um, Zytel and Frumacera. Right, okay. And and that's how I initially met Ian um, during Fiddler on the Roof. He was doing Fiddler on the Roof and I joined the company uh, and I came in as one of the chorus members and understudying Zytel and Frumacera. Right. And so we, we, we did a tour and that's during that period was where Ian met his wife, Gail. She was an usherette in the theatre. Wow. So that all happened then. Yeah. And then um, I did... I did a season with them and then I went off overseas to America. Right, okay. To the States. And that was another story where I was offered Broadway. Um, but, wow. Um, and, then I, and then they asked me to come back and I came back and went straight into Fiddler on the Roof again. Right, okay. So that's how I knew Ian. Yeah, and then wow. when I went to work for Grundy's on Prisoner, Ian was assistant producer. Wow. But at that time I was working at Crawford's. Right. He headhunted you. He headhunted me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you did some um, amateur theatre um, growing up. Well, yeah, I started off at a very young age. Mm. Um, you know, I'll give my age away. <laughs> but as a little girl, they used to have on the radio the hit parade. Right. And so I used to do all the numbers. So the family had to sit and watch Jan do all the numbers, you really? see. And then from there, I joined the local youth group, drama group. Okay. And I was a teenager at the time, and I was very lucky that my teacher was a, a, a RADA okay. uh, graduate. Mm. So I, I, I sort of worked under her mm. and for the youth group, and, and we, um, we sort of went into competitions and things like that. Right. And then over the years, then I gradually took over and started directing these right, little, okay. little shows for yep. youth groups. And then one day I decided, I think I want to sing. Right, okay, and, so you, you, you hadn't learnt how to sing by no, that point. No, 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 but I thought, I think I want to sing. But, you know, I used to play out the back and sing and pretend I was a princess and all that sort of thing, <laughs> you know, you all do that growing up. And then I went along and auditioned for a local um, uh, musical theatre company. Yes. I think it was uh, uh, Northern Light Opera at that stage, okay. auditioned for them, uh, did uh, a few, did about three shows with them. Yep. And then went to um, Williamstown. Right. And did uh, South Pacific and and all of that, playing Nelly Fort Bush, did a few shows down there with them. Yeah. And then decided, I think I want to become a professional. After the Williamstown, uh, they used to have the listener in here. Okay. And um, which is like the TV week now, except it was a big, big, like a big newspaper. But it was right. called Listener In. Okay. 
and they used to advertise the auditions. So there was right. a big audition one day um, for Oliver mm. at Her Majesty's Theatre. So I thought, okay, this is what I'm going to do. But I had to sneak along to do it because I couldn't tell my parents. Right. Because they didn't want me to go into professional theatre. They liked me just doing amateur theatre because they said, no, 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 it's not a good career for a girl to go into. (laughs) And besides, there's a lot of funny people in that (laughs) industry, you know. We don't want our daughter going into that sort of area. Mm. And so I had to sneak along to the audition. Wow. Um, So I did and Betty Pounder was there and Bone Mm. Buggy and all of that. So I did the audition and... um, Two days later, I get a phone call saying, well, you've got the job and you're going to be touring Australia and New Zealand. And how did you respond to that? Well, I went, oh, okay, great. Oh, God, I've got to tell my parents. <laughs> <laughs> so that was the first thing you thought of? That was the first thing I thought of. Oh, But wow. I was very excited. So I told my parents. I had to sit them down and say, look, this is what's happened. I sneaked off. And this is what I did. Mm. Da, 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 da. And they said, okay, do this show and get it out of your blood. <laughs> <laughs> and and you didn't. I never did. No, no. It's always going to be in your blood, though, isn't exactly. it? Exactly. And, and even like two years ago, I went back on stage for the production company and did Funny Girl. So, hello, I'm still there. How do you respond at, at a young age to getting in a professional show and doing... Were you doing eight shows a week at that? Yes. Yep. Yes, okay. Yeah. And, Emily, like, how, how long was your run? How long did well, that show go for? Well, I think we ran with uh, Oliver for about 18 months. Really? Mm. Uh, and that's, these days, an, a, a run of 18 months for a musical would be considered oh, really, yeah, but that, really... We're talking, we're talking a different era. Mm. And we played every state in Australia. Right. We toured New Zealand, every place, even Palmerston North in New Zealand <laughs> we went to. My really? God. And uh, so we, we toured all around. And, and it was a wonderful, wonderful experience because um, I worked with some of the most wonderful performers. I worked with Tony Lamond, mm, who played Nancy. Wow. Uh, Richard Wordsworth, who played the lead role. Mm. Um, wonderful, wonderful artists. And I was fortunate enough to understudy a couple of roles as well. Great. Which was, you know, getting that in your first, in your first pro show was amazing. Mm. And um, so I learned a lot. And there were a lot of, there were some older performers there who had been big stars in their time. They were great because they became mentors Mm, and sort of guided me along in a lot of things that I wanted to do and and what I should do and what I shouldn't do and all the unwritten laws of theatre. You did Oliver. Name the other musicals and and it's, it's, it's a big list. Well, it is a big list. It sort of goes on. I We, we were in um, New Zealand finishing the Oliver tour mm. and uh, the woman playing Widow Corney, uh, Marion Edward, was called back to Australia uh, because they were doing Man of La Mancha in right. Australia and okay. she was um, called back to do The Housekeeper. And I had to – I understudied her. Right. So I had to go on, finish the tour as Widow Corney. I was a very young widow, Courtney. <laughs> had to be all bulked up and all sorts of things. Okay. And uh, Ormond Douglas, who was a well-known uh, performer at that time, I had to work with him. Uh, so that finished off my season of of Oliver. Mm. And uh, the last night we had a huge party and I got a phone call. Um, they said, oh, Jan, there's a phone call for you. And uh, it was Pounder saying, we want you back um, as soon as you can for the next flight because you start rehearsals for La Mancha on Tuesday. Oh, wow. Um, so I flew back and went straight into um, rehearsals for Man of La Mancha. Wow. Uh, which was another um, 
a history-making show uh, in Australia because it wasn't the usual pretty, pretty sort of shows. We played the comedy theatre and there were people standing in the aisles. Now, that's just never done. Unheard but of. people were standing in the aisles. Really? When we finished the last song and we finished, there was just silence in the theatre, total silence. And we, we sort of started to go, oh, God, oh, my God, they hate us, they hate us, oh, my God. And then suddenly this uproar came from the theatre. The audience went absolutely ballistic. Really? It was, it was quite extraordinary. When I finished the tour, that's when I went to the States after that. And Marnie Sumner, who directed us in, in Australia, and I caught up with him in New York. And they were doing La Mancha in, on Broadway at the right. time. Right, okay. So he said, come and see the show, which I went to see the show. And uh, and then sort of said, oh, come on, we'll, we'll have lunch. I want you to meet someone. So we did all of that. And, um, and then they said, oh, we want you to, we'd like you to sort of join our company. And we'll on organise on Broadway. We'll organise a ticket and everything for you. But <laughs> then I went, oh, oh. and but I was a bit homesick at that time, right? And I thought, oh no, I don't think I could stay on. And so I sort of came home. Did and you then, get to do any any work? No, on it? I no? came home, mm. and then he came out to Australia and go, "What happened? Why did you? Why did you go? Why did you?" I said, "Well, I was homesick," mm. and it, you know, which was back then. It was a you know, it was a different a different world to today. I yeah, mean, yeah. we're so much closer to it all now and it's a whole different... But to go over there at that time... You it was know, so far away from home. It was so far away from home, mm. yeah. And that's where I came back and I think I went into... I did Fiddler on the Roof. Yeah. Um, and then after that I did Charlie Girl. We only ended up playing Melbourne because we were here for such a long time. How, how long was a long time then? Six oh, months? God, easily, yeah. yeah, yeah. Right. And then we went to New Zealand and we only ever played Auckland. Okay. Uh, because uh, you didn't need we to didn't tour. need to go anywhere else. What was the show then after Charlie Girl? Uh, Godspell. Okay. Yeah. It's it's a major ensemble show. Oh, that was wonderful, mm. wonderful show to do. We we initially played the um, the original play box here in in Melbourne, wow. which no longer exists. Mm. And then we toured New Zealand yep. with the show. I think we we're in New Zealand for about nine months touring with the show. Wow! And um, oh god, I remember one night um, I'm in the middle of my song, and uh, I thought, oh, people are leaving the theatre. I didn't think I was that bad, you know. <laughs> and more people were getting up and going out and going out. And I'm thinking, I'm continuing on with the song. And I'm thinking, what's going on? What's going on? Suddenly the fire curtain came down and it was a bomb scare. It had a bomb scare. So the police had to come in and clear, check all the theatre. Wow. But it was okay. Mm. And then we went on with the performance. But at that time, because we were portraying Jesus as a clown. Yes, you were in trouble for that. We were in trouble in New Zealand because we we had people outside the theatre with placards demonstrating up and down outside the theatre. Did they mm. accost you at stage door? Uh, yes, they did. Oh. They used to accost us at stage door as well, saying, how, how can you, how dare you, how dare you do this show, how dare you go into the theatre and go on stage and do this? And we said, well, we're just doing a job. In Godspell, you met, um, you fell in love with someone? 
Oh, yes, yes. I, I ended up sort of marrying him. He was a Kiwi. Um, we met, uh, or I met over there and used to be at some of the parties, so that's how I met him. And you got married? We got married. I came home and uh, after the after touring and uh, Biddy Pounder rang me again and said, um, I want you to come in on Tuesday because uh, I want you to go into um, a little night music. Wow, okay. And I, I said, oh, Miss Panda, I'm sorry, I'm flying to New Zealand on the weekend. <laughs> to see your boyfriend. To see my boyfriend. And she went, no, well, you can cancel the ticket. So I ended up staying in New Zealand. Right. And that's where I then had another career in New Zealand of I went into theatre in New Zealand and then I got into um, television in New Zealand. Um, I was the first female floor manager in in New Zealand. How did you break into TV? Like you've done all this theatre career. How did you break into TV? How did I break into God? That's going bad. How did I get onto that one? I think I just – I think because I'd done um, a lot of theatre over there – and I had done some of the television shows in New Zealand. While you were touring? While I was there. Okay. And and so people sort of got to to know me. And when I went back there and I got into theatre again. Yes. Uh, that's how they, that's how they knew me. So mm. um, I sort of, you know, I mean, it's how you know, you talk to people and things like that and said, oh, look, I'd like to sort of, you know, maybe go on to the other side of television mm, as well yep. and have a go at that. And I started off doing production secretary work. And and, and worked your way up. Yes. You became a single mother. How, yes. How well, did that all transpire? That all transpired I, when I came back to Australia. Okay. So you moved back with, moved your, back with your husband. Because that was, yeah, we all moved back home to yep. Australia, which is something I really wanted to do. Mm. And that's, I started work at the, um, uh, in a, a theatre restaurant. I had done theatre restaurant work in New Zealand as well. I'd done a lot of stuff over there mm. um, in South Melbourne, the stage door theatre restaurant. Okay. And started work there. And uh, that sort of wasn't a good time because my husband sort of felt he didn't want to sit home and look after a baby and sometimes would go out and leave the baby with someone else and mm, all that. Okay. And, um, and I think he felt that... Um, uh, you know, being in, in show business or television, he was a bit threatened. Right, uh, be, because you were the maiden breadwinner, well, or is that oh, no, Well, to a certain it? extent, but then, you know, there is that always bit of jealousy because you sort of chat away to someone and you're friendly and all of that. But there was, it wasn't only that because there was an underlying thing as well. Mm. And there was also started to be lack of communication, mm. all of that sort of thing. So, um, the marriage broke up, and but you know he also had another side that he was gay. Okay, and oh, he was bisexual, and he became gay. And how was that a, a bombshell when you were told uh, that? Or? Well, I, I guess you know I sort of you know you have a have an idea, but you think that it's all going to be okay. Mm, okay, you know, and you think no, 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 uh, it'll 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 work out. Everything will be fine, but it doesn't. And so you had to, you were suppressing those kind of thoughts. Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he left, you've become a single mum. You've, yes. you've developed this whole career in musical theatre, in TV. You obviously want to keep doing that, but then you, you feel a sense of responsibility to, to look after Sam. Totally. How, how does that work for well, you? Well, that was a really difficult time. Um, and I knew, 
I knew my marriage was in a bad way and I knew I had to do something. I'd heard there was something coming up at Crawford's in the casting. Someone mm. was leaving. And so I put out the, the word and said, you know, oh, could be interested. So that is actually how that all happened. So wow. I got a job in casting uh, working with Bunny Brook. I got a phone call out of the blue from mm. Ian Smith. Right, yes. And he said, um, do you want to go for lunch? <laughs> I went, oh, is this a free lunch? <laughs> he said, yeah. I said, okay, I'm on for a free lunch. Yeah, okay. So I went off to lunch, but it wasn't with Ian. It was actually with Lex Van Oz, whom I knew in New Zealand, who was the producer of Prisoner. So Lex had took me out to lunch and offered me the position of casting director. And were you blown away? Prisoner. Were you blown I away by that? I literally couldn't believe it. I sort of thought, oh, how can I, how can I be a casting director? I, I you know, I, I don't know. I, I don't know that I can do it. What was your experience with casting before this? Well, I'd worked with Bunny. Mm. You know, I worked there but for as a casting um, director. This eighteen is all months. New I had exactly mm. totally different territory. But I'd worked eighteen months, and I did learn a lot from her in that time. But he felt, no, we feel that you can, you can do it. Because you're suddenly head of a department. Absolutely. Like you're, you're the boss in your department. Totally. And and so I did freak out. Yes. And at that time, I think I was going through my divorce and all of that. So it was all happening at the time. And I'm mm. going, oh my God. And I remember some relatives were over from America and I talked to them about it. And they said, you got to go for it, girl. You know, <laughs> you got to go for it. And I went, oh, really? <laughs> you go for it. You know? So I thought, Okay, I gotta go for it. So I said, Okay, I'll do it. I suppose your learning curve would have been enormous during that time. Well it was. It was, but it was exciting. It was an exciting time. And and I loved it because it was the first time you had a show that was had all these female mm, leads. Yes, yes. You know, and it was wonderful because I mean I knew a lot of the actors. Mm. And, and theatre actors, and it was wonderful to be able to get them in and give them an opportunity of playing these really strong, you know, strong female roles yes. that, you know, normally you don't always get. And, and, and so that, that, that was an exciting part of it. I really loved that, that side of it. As a casting director, how would you best describe your role? Oh, well, I mean, I felt as a casting director, I had to know just about every actor that was out there. It was my job. But that's enormous, every actor that's out there. I used to know every every actor's name, even some of the smaller roles, because I would see them and call them by name and they'd go, oh, God, didn't think you'd remember my name, you know. Um, but that, that to me was the job of a casting director. I would go to shows, I would go to graduations, I would go to amateur shows or anything, anything at all. Um, I could possibly go and see that there may be some extraordinary talent. It's like putting a jigsaw puzzle together that you, you've got to work it out and and you've got to get to know your actor as well because you've got to know that they will get on with the other people that they're going to be working with because mm. as an actor you're not working on your own. You yes. work together as a team mm. and that team must all sort of gel. gel. And if it doesn't gel, if there's one bit that doesn't gel, well, mm, the whole thing it, falls apart. The whole apart. thing can fall apart. Prisoner finished and yep. y- you get the news that um, this will be the last series. 
What do you yeah. What do you do? Do you Do you freak out that I'm not going to get a paycheck anymore? No, because at that time I was doing Neighbours as well. Uh, okay, was, so let, let's backtrack. <laughs> let's backtrack again. So hang on a sec. You're You're doing Prisoner and mm. Neighbours mm-hmm. at the same time. Mm-hmm. So how mm. did you get headhunted for Neighbours? Well, same company. So I'm doing Prisoner, and I get a call from Reg Watson, who right. was the Head honcho big in Sydney, wig, yeah. big wig up there, and said, oh, Janice, said, we're thinking of doing a new show. Right. Uh, he said, I'm going to send some scripts down to you to read, and he said, I want you to start making a list of some actors. Yeah. Okay, so I said, oh, fine, okay. And uh, so he sent me down these the scripts, which was called, the working title was Living Together. And then I started sort of putting some names together, and then and then it came about they they ended up getting a, a producer, which was John Holmes. Right, yes. And then they got the first director, which was Mark Joffa. It was the three of us together. Right. Um, working together, auditioning. Well, I started to audition um, people for Neighbours, you know. We got together who we thought we liked, mm. the group we liked. And yep. once again, it was like putting things together mm, and saying, no, 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 puzzle, don't, yeah. don't, you're not having that one. No, no, we're having this one because this one's da-da-da. And I can remember before we um, started Neighbours, we we had a night where we were all sitting around having drinks and da-da-da, and John Holmes and I are sitting there and looking around at the cast and we're going, yeah, yeah, we've got a good cast. And we both went, no, we've made a mistake. We've made a mistake here. And we both looked at each other and we went, yeah, we know who it is. So we did a recast. Mm. And can you say which role that was? Alan Dale took over the role. Wow. Okay. And mm. how did you know that you'd done that casting incorrectly? Because once again, it was watching them um, socialising together, mm. and he was just a little bit, it was just a little bit distant. Right. Wasn't sort of there getting in like everybody else was, enjoying each other's company, you know, really contacting and he just wasn't contacting with them. And then Channel 7 axed us. Yeah, and, and what was that which, about? Which, well, the ratings, they felt the ratings weren't. So, you know, the front page of The Truth, which mm-hmm. doesn't exist anymore. Yes. TV show axed, mm. big black letters. And then... Outside Channel 7, outside the studio, the day we finished, the fans were all standing out there with black armbands <laughs> and single red carnations. Really? <laughs> waiting for the actors to come out. Yes. Wow. And this is only after 12 months on air, is that uh, right? Roughly about that, I think, yeah. But then we, we, we after that, we were axed and we thought, mm, God, what's going to happen now? And they said, oh, they, they're going to try and sell it to another network. Right. So, in my office, there's there's John Holmes and and um, the associate producer and myself with a bottle of champagne sitting on the table, waiting for the phone call to come through, <laughs> and we're going, oh, is it going to come through? I wonder if it's going to happen. And the phone rings, and we all look at each other and go, who's going to answer it? You know, is this it? <laughs> Picked up the phone, we've sold it to Channel Ten. Wow! Pop goes the champagne <laughs> celebrations. And Absolutely. I mean, that almost sounds too easy that it's kind of jumped networks. Obviously, there's a lot happening behind the scenes. A lot happening behind the scenes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then how, how do you best... An interesting dis- thing was when Channel 10 um, took it and they sort of said, oh, we'll get the sets and everything from Seven. Yeah. The sets got burnt. Did they? Mm, how convenient. That's a bit strange, wasn't it? Wow. And how was that investigated? Oh, I think it was quickly shoved under the carpet. <laughs> Wow. Mm. So you had to do a whole new they set They had build. to do a whole new set. 
Wow. Mm. Now, how do you how do you put into words your almost quarter of a century on Neighbours? I mean, that's uh, – pe- people last 12 months in showbiz, that, that's uh, incredible. Mm. You're mm. on one show uh. as the head of a department and then became associate producer towards mm. the end mm-hmm. for a quarter of a century. I mean, is it difficult to look back now about – the length of that time you were doing that for and what you achieved? You know, achieved? it seemed like only a minute. <laughs> All Did those really? years, you go, oh, my God, is that how long I was there? It Did was it really? the most extraordinary time. And I met, you know, I met amazing people, had an amazing time, mm. uh, you know, through the, the, the process of the initially starting the show off, the process of suddenly finding UK wanting to know everything about everybody. Right. That we were having news of the world and all of that flying in from the UK, Mm. wanting to find out information or dig up dirt on any of the actors and all of that sort of thing. And Mm. it was, we'd never had this sort of thing happen before in Australia. And when you read the first lot of scripts, did you ever think... In your, in your wildest dreams, it would be as successful as it, it ended up being? Well, no, 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 no. I mean, we hoped it would be successful here in Australia. Yeah. Because that's all anything had ever been. Mm. I mean, we thought, well, you know, it'd be nice if something happened, but we never, ever imagined in our wildest dreams of the success that would come out of the show. Mm. You know. And, and the I, 80s, of course, was just the most amazing time. So for, uh, the show. for for that kind of period was were there was it permanent excitement for you like, yeah, when you were discovering were. all these people? It, I think it was. It was. It was. Um, it was exciting, um, and it was a was a bit of a high all the time because you know it 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 was exciting finding these people going out, finding them, and finding they all work together, and the fact that it was successful mm. as well. You think, oh, I am doing the right thing. Yeah, right. <laughs> it is all it is all right, mm. you know. Absolutely. And did it become harder to, you know, as each year goes by and the success keeps continuing to grow, is it harder to kind of, you know, come up with new faces to, to discover more talent or is that what really drives you forward? Well, it's what sort of drives you forward. And, I mean, I... I was, as I said, I was constantly out there and I would travel all around Australia. I even travelled to New Zealand mm. um, to and, and bought some actors back from there. Wow. Uh, so it was, you know, that was the exciting thing about it, was just finding new talent. I mean, I love that. I suppose coming from a theatrical background and being you know, a performer myself, I know how wonderful it is for that to happen. How do you know when you've found someone that's going to be really, 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 really special? Well, you know, I suppose... Everybody asks me that question and it's something that, I don't know, it's an inner quality, it's something that comes through that screen and it's something like everybody says to me, you know, you know, what did you see in Kylie? Mm. And I said, well, you know, this young girl came into the, the audition room and I said, she sat down, but I said, oh, fine, you know, a little quiet little thing and I looked over at the camera, at the uh, monitor, I went, oh, there's something here. The camera loved her. Right, okay. There was just, a, it's it's a inequality, it's something that they have. Not everybody has it. It's only, you know, not a lot of people have it. And then that's discovering one piece of the jigsaw puzzle Absolutely. as in one person. Exactly. But then to try and find that Kylie 
Jason match. Well, how do you start with that? Exactly, exactly. I mean, I think you know that that time. um, I think I was very lucky that I got all of those guys together at the same time. Right. Okay. So it was just opportune. I think, you know, and it's like being in the right place at the right time. Mm. I mean, I had auditioned Jason earlier, originally. Okay, separately to the Kylie originally era. Originally when the show started. Right. And But he was doing his HSC and he's, his dad, Terry, mm. had talked to him and said, look, you know, finish your HSC. And, you know, so Jason came back to me and said, oh, sorry, Jan, I've got to finish my HSC. <laughs> I said, that's fine, Jason, don't worry about it. There'll be a next time. Right, okay. And you were absolutely sure that you would see him again. Absolutely. Yep. So when that role came up, I immediately knew. That's the guy. I know who I'm getting for that role. Mm. Uh, Daniel McPherson. Yes. I was in Sydney yep. um, auditioning. Mm. And uh, his agent rang me and said, oh, I've got this young boy I want you to see while you're up there. Can you, can you fit him in? And I said, okay, yep, I'll fit him in. Because yep. I thought you've got to do it, you never know. Sure. So this young boy's there and I get him in and immediately I went, I've got something here. Mm. So I took it straight back and I said, I've got this guy, we've got to do something with him. So they went, right, okay. So three months later, and Daniel talks about this, he said, I didn't get a phone call till three months later <laughs> going, okay, you've got to write. And he goes, oh, what, three months later? We had to write the role for him. Okay, so that's something that uh, it's not only that you're finding um, new actors for characters that have been written, you're actually finding actors and then writing parts for them. Well, that that happened certainly happened with him. Yeah. Wow. Because mm. that mm. that's almost like a step beyond the, the casting process, yes. isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And were there actors that you can talk about that you you thought, look, there's something there. I'm not quite sure what. I'll give you a go. And then they just blew oh, e- totally. everyone away. Totally. Yep. Yep. How often would that happen? Well, that 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 can happen. You know, quite a lot. You've you've you see that bit of spark there, and you go, I know there's something, there's something there. I believe in you. Mm. You know, it's it's always. I used to say Guy Pearce was the dark horse. I used to call him the dark horse okay. years and years ago. So, what did you see in Guy to begin with? There was something because he was like eighteen, I think, when he yep. auditioned. And to me, he really had something. When once again, when I looked on camera uh, on the monitor, and I went, mm, "It's really something." There. He, he, he. I mean, he looked great, mm. but there was, he was a. I don't know. There was just that quality there, and I thought, "There's something with this guy." I don't think he he hadn't done a lot, mm. and I thought, "But there is something there. We've got to." Do something pursue, with him right. and pursue him. So mm. that happened. Um, another one that that got away was um, uh, Chris Hemsworth. Okay, um, I got him into the show, and he was playing a footballer. Right, and uh, they said, "Oh, oh, there's nothing more we can sort of write for about him." And I said, "But we've got to keep him on. <laughs> this guy has got really got something." No, but we don't know what we're going to do with him. We don't know which way to go. No, no, you've got to hold on to him. I said, you've got to hold on to him. You've got to hold on to him. Don't let him go. Don't let him go. Because <laughs> they said, no, 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 we haven't. We can't do anything. Let him go. And, you know, the rest is history. Russell Crowe was, um, he, he'd, he'd done his movie. Yes. And um, interesting little story, he was going into South Korea. Right. Because my son. Mm. Uh, lives in South Korea and is a big celebrity there. And uh, so he contacted and said, I want to be the one to interview 
Russell Crowe when he gets here. Right. So he sent a thing off to Russell and Russell mm. said, yeah, yeah, okay. So he right. did this interview with Russell and I, I watched it and sort of halfway through the interview, Sam pulls this photo out. <laughs> says to a young Russell, Russell Crowe? Yeah, says to Russell Crowe, do you know who this woman is? Oh, you. And Russell says, yeah, he said, yeah, that's your mother. <laughs> <laughs> he said she put me into Neighbours for a few weeks. He said, I think I earned about $2,000. He said it had paid for the rent for a while. <laughs> <laughs> that's a great story. Now, while we speak of Sam, he was an exchange student that went to South Korea. Yeah, is that correct? Yeah, At yeah. what age? Uh, he, he he went three weeks after his 21st birthday. Okay. To and South Korea. How long did he spend there? Well, he was there for uh, 10 months. Right. And he, did he learn much of the language at that oh, time? Oh, absolutely, because okay. he'd been studying at Swinburne. Right. And he'd been studying the language. Okay. And, and he'd also mixed with Koreans there, so his language was quite good. Right, okay. You know. And um, so he went over there and graduated and came home and said, I'm going back again. Because, you know, I've learnt Korean, I stay here in Australia, I'll lose it. So he went back. But just before he graduated, he he got very ill. Okay. Uh, which I kept very quiet at the time. But mm. he he rang me one night and said, oh, Mum, I'm sick. I'm very, very sick. And he'd called hepatitis B. Oh, wow. And uh, so I had the um, Australian Embassy on the phone um, to me and... You know, we organised flights for me to fly over and his best friend flew over with me because we didn't know what we were going to find. Oh, really? And uh, so they were at the airport there and the Australian Embassy people were at the hospital when I got there and they had organised phone calls with um, specialists back here in Australia for me to talk to and all of that sort of thing because obviously his liver was, you know, going very quickly. Mm. And uh, I remember we walked into the hospital room his friend and I, and we both went, oh, God, because it was just orange and looked like cat's eyes. Oh, and really? His mate said, I've got to go for a cigarette, and, you know, off he went. Mm. Um, so that was a very um, traumatic time. So they had an intensive care doctor and nurse flown over from Australia. Really? And uh, to take him back to Australia because the specialist here said, look, you've got to get him back here. Um, he could die on the plane or... You could get him back here, but get him back here as quickly as possible. They allowed us to take him out of the hospital, but they wouldn't sign the thing in case anything happened to him. And as how he was died the on the back? way back? The flight back was incredible because they had um, all the oxygen and everything everywhere. And uh, I think we stopped in um, Brisbane, and they took us off the flight. And then back on again because we had to go through customs quickly. Oh, really? And then we got to Melbourne. And we were especially taken off. Oh, they had it was extraordinary. Hydraulic lifts to get us off, and all of that. And had an ambulance waiting at the um, the airport, and zipped us through customs, put him straight into the airport. All my family were there waiting to see him, mm. and stood outside the ambulance, and he was taken straight to um, hospital. And how long was the recovery process for that? Uh, well, it, it took a while. It took quite a while, um, and. Uh, you know, I mean, I had the minister ringing me saying, you know, we've got to talk to you because, you know, if there's going to be a liver transplant and if anything happens to him. So it was, it was the most horrible time to be on my own as a mm, mother yes. and have to cope with with that. Um, during that time, um, Grundy's just 
paid me and let me have all that time off. Wow. Uh, they were they were amazing. Mm. Um, they just said, no, just just do what you have to do. And then how does he recover then, like, long-term from something like that? Well, um, I, I sort of made sure he was, you know, looked after him with organic juices and took him to a, chi- a Chinese specialist okay. lady that I'd found out about mm. who really knew her stuff. helped in newer mm. stuff. And so eventually, you know, we, he'd have to go back and report to the hospital mm. and, and eventually they said, oh, no, it's fine, the liver's you know, regenerated. Wow. And, um, and he didn't the virus have to have a liver got, a transplant? No, no. Okay. The, 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 the liver is the only organ in your body that can regenerate. Right. That you can lose you can lose down to 15%, I think, okay. and it can regenerate. But so, now, now he's, I mean, does he feel any ill oh, effects? Oh, no, no, from... no. He's, he's, he's fine. He sometimes feels he's, um, because he's got a bit of weight on that, that is probably from... Right. Okay. Yeah. And so yeah. fast forward, you know, 20 years after he's recovered from mm. this, um, the footage that I've seen of him is where he really, you know, said that he's burst out to be a superstar over mm. there. He ap- appeared on a um, on a reality show <laughs> where they put him in the military and he had yep. to do the things that the military yep. did along yep. with six other celebrities mm-hmm. and that catapulted him t- to fame. What happened before that? How was he famous before that and what's happened since? Oh well, um, he well he was over there. He got a phone call from a friend saying they want a foreigner for a game show. Right? Do you want to go on it as a contestant? As a contestant. Okay. He said, "Yeah, I'll go on it" because he could speak fluent Korean. So they said, "Oh, you know, okay." Yeah. That night there was a manager sitting in the audience who came to him after the show. Sam won the show. Right. And what is what did he win? Can oh, you I don't think he won very much money. <laughs> And the manager came to him and said, would you like to do some more work? So Sam said, yeah, okay, I'll do some more work. So he spent 15 years doing a lot of different things. From what to what? I mean, he's he's been in film clips, oh, he does commercials, well, he's reality done all sorts TV. of things. I saw him doing a, um, a Kentucky Fried Colonel Sanders, <laughs> playing Colonel Sanders on something. I mean, he got on a comedy show. I mean, he did anything and everything. I mean, some of the things I don't know how he did. But he did anything and everything. And then he said to me after 15 years, he said, Mum, I'm going to give it up. He said, nothing's happening. I'm going to give it up. Really? And then he said, a couple of weeks later, he said, oh, look, he said, I've been offered a couple of shows. He said, but this this one show, he said, I'm thinking I might do. He said, it's going into the military. <laughs> and he said, I wanted to go into the Australian Army, but no, they wouldn't accept me because I had flat feet. Right. he tried to get into the Australian Army did a couple he? of times and okay. they turned him down. Yeah. So he said, I'll... I think I'll do this. So it was six celebrities. So he went into that show. He was on it for two years. Two years. Two years they did that. And exactly like they would have done it in the Korean army. Really? He he shot big rifles and, 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 and lived out in the, you know, it was freezing cold. They were in t- he did all of that. He said it was the most extraordinary time. But because he did some things and because he was a foreigner, mm. they're going, oh, a foreigner. In our army, with the army show, I was. They flew me over to surprise him in the army show. Wow! How was so, that? Oh, that was that was fantastic. That was fantastic. And he had no idea. He you had were no idea up. because they kept me away from it all. Mm. And um, 
And so then I sort of burst through the door and, and they, oh, they had an interpreter there for me and all of that. So it was it was lovely and I took koala bears and gave them to the other celebrities and all of that. So that was that was fun, yeah. And he's still over there? He's oh, he's still, still over there. And then I did the cooking show. Yeah, okay. And tell me about that experience. Well, they flew me over for a cooking show and that was interesting because I did a cooking show with my daughter-in-law. Right. And we had to sort of cook things um, to, and Sam had to you know, say which one he liked best. But, of course, some of the, the food that they had wasn't anything like we had. It wasn't right, quite okay. the so same. So you had to think on the, on the, on so the run. So it, really, it was really a bit tricky. Now, I wanted to talk to you about Australian Story. Ah, uh, yes. Australian Story is obviously the ABC program. Mm-hmm. Monday nights at 8 o'clock, very yep. popular, that tells um, tells the life of an Australian through a documentary mm-hmm. um, premise. And, I mean, this is how big you are in Australia. They couldn't fit you all in one episode. No. They had to do a double episode <laughs> yeah. on you. How does someone or how do you get approached to, to do that? How did that happen for you? Uh well, the ABC, it, it was through um, actually a friend of mine one day we sort of had gone to a play and and um, and I mentioned to him, not about Australian story, I mentioned to him about some of my life and he went, oh, my God, that would be, you know, great for Australian story. Mm. Got to do something about that. Right. And he contacted someone and then they, the ABC then contacted me. Okay. And said... Initially, they sort of thought, oh, no, we don't want to do it because everybody knows who she is about, you know, casting, no things, so much been done on her, da, da, da. And then they said, but no, there's this other story about her. And then mm. they went, oh, okay. Right. Well, let's, let's do that. And then they encompassed Sam's story as well. Mm. So that's, they said, oh, we've got to do, it's got to be two episodes. There's no yeah. way we can fit it all into one. And then, so, I mean, you, you've discussed, obviously, Sam's life and your career. Yep. The other aspect that yep. they wanted to talk about yep. in Australian Story. Tell me tell me about that and, and how that um, has, I guess, affected you throughout your life. Right. Well, I had a, um, a oh, as they used to say, a child out of wedlock, mm. which is the way they used to call it years ago. Um, I had a daughter who was um, taken and adopted and... That was another part of my life that was just, um, I look back at it now and I think I don't know how I survived it really. Um, And I found out I was um, pregnant and back then it was just, wow, that just never happened. You couldn't, you know, you were looked on as if you were, you know, bad girl and all of that sort of thing. I mean, it's, you know, purely natural thing and you think, oh, these days nobody even thinks mm, twice, twice about, about it. it. But back then it was a really – and, I, you know, my father was a very strict, you know, your father's word was law basically. Mm, mm. And um, so I found out I was pregnant, which was pretty scary, and um, I told my boyfriend and and um, so he decided he didn't want to – get married or anything like that. So I thought, oh, what, what am I going to do? So I I went to Sydney and I told my parents I was going on a holiday. And, and did I you t- go with anyone to I Sydney? I went on my own. How was that? I he mean, you were me, quite young. Yeah, he put me on the train. My boyfriend put me on the train and I was hoping right up until then that he'd go, no, you're not going. But he didn't. He put me on the train and waved goodbye. And I went, and that was just 
uh, totally unbelievable, you know. And then I get to Sydney and I'd never been to Sydney before. Mm. I get to Sydney, the station, I didn't know, but I'd, I'd written away and got this, I'd seen it in a magazine about this unmarried mother's home in right. Sydney. And so I had the telephone number and I rang them as soon as I got to the railway station. I found a bo- telephone box and rang them and they said, oh, we can't take you because we're so, we're full. We mm. can't take you. How do you, how do you respond I to that? I was just devastated. I didn't know what to do. I think everything drained from my body and I, I, what do I do? I don't know. Oh, they said, okay, go up, to, walk up here and go up to the YWCA. Right. So I, and ring us the next day, we'll sort mm. something out. So I get up to the YWCA and it was one of those horrible brown buildings, depressing, horrible. And I remember um, going up there, going into the room and sitting in that room and just feeling just empty and horrible and just hopeless, hopeless, hopeless. And that's where I went and I went to the window, opened the window and stood up at the window ready to jump. I just wanted to end my life. Mm. I just didn't know what to do. I was just had no one to call on nothing and that was it. And I, uh, something sort of pulled me back. I don't, it, it, whether I felt something in my tummy or I could just see my parents' faces as well. And I thought, oh God, I can't, I can't do that to them. I got to, I can't do that to them. Mm. I'm being, you know, maybe this is being selfish. I'm, so I, it, it pulled me back from the jumping. But I was ready to jump. So I can understand that desperation people get to. Mm. And I pulled back and and the next day, I don't know how I got through the night, but I rang the next day and they put me on to this woman to go and stay with. And... I stayed with her and looked after her children and all of that until I had to uh, go to the hospital until I started having contractions. And and then um, I can remember being in the cubicle, uh, terrified, terrified, not knowing what was going on with my body or anything and just feeling this extraordinary pain, thinking I was going to die. And this nurse came in and told me to shut up um, and, and threw an ether mask on me and said, breathe deeply, just shut up. You're making so much noise. Just shut up. Um, there's a woman and her husband in the next cubicle and she's trying to have a baby. I thought, well, what am I trying to do? I've got no one, you know. Mm. Um, so that was that was the treatment they got. Even the doctor when she was... Um, uh, when she was born, you know, it was all up in those horrible stirrups and it just ripped her out and said, oh, don't worry about that. She's just one of those girls. Just ripped it away, you know. And then we weren't allowed to, allowed to talk to the married women there and we were stuck down the back in horrible old iron beds and not allowed to talk to anyone and kept away from everyone. And uh, we were just treated as if we were nothing better than the dirt, you know. So your baby's been delivered. <clears throat> They take your baby away. Mm. What, what happens after that? Well, Do you I was get a saying, what is hold? it? What is it? What is it? And they just, as they were going, they said, oh, it's a girl. That was it. To no compassion. No. Oh, God, no. No, no, nothing. Nothing. And when did you get to hold your baby 
for the first time. I didn't get to hold because they kept her from me. And one of the nuns, an older nun, came into me one day, and I was just in the in the bed, and she said, "Do you think you should ring your mother?" And I said, "Yes." So she said, "Okay." So I rang my mother, and all I said to my mother was, "I need you." And my mother was a very instinctive person and she was on the next flight up and she went to look for the woman that I stayed with and she said, where's Jan? And she's, she said, to, where's Jan and where's the baby? And my mother came to the hospital and I remember her walking into that ward and I just stood up on the bed and just burst into tears and she was there and then she, my mother then took me in to meet my daughter for the first time. How was that? That was just the most extraordinary feeling. Um, after all these years, I still get emotional about it. Um, to actually hold her and, and you know, just have her there and just tell her how much I loved her. Um, and then my mother said, we'll take, we're taking her home. So that was, I thought, oh, God. That's great. So we um, we bought a home on the plane, and um, we stopped at my brother's place. And my mother said, and father said, "We're going for a meeting. We're going to have a meeting about it." I wasn't included in the meeting, and <clears throat> they thought maybe my brother and sister might adopt. But they were going through something else themselves at that time, so they couldn't. And then, so my parents came back and said, "No, the baby will be going back to Sydney." They made the decision they made for the you. Decision, yeah. And that's the way it was done then. Your parents' word was law. How do you react to that decision? Well, uh, that just—I was just devastated totally devastated. My brother took her back to Sydney and it it was months and months and I, I only found out later that my that my mother had said to someone, I can hear Jan in the middle of the night calling out, where's my baby? How did you say goodbye to your daughter? Well... When was the last time you... It, that was really hard. I just told her um, how much I loved her. And it's not something that I wanted to do. Um, but I, you know, I just hoped she had a great life um, and hope one day that I would, I would meet her. So your brother's taken your child yep. back to Sydney yep. to do To what? hand it over to the woman I stayed with, new, peop- new people. Which are a lovely family. Which were, um, as far as I knew... Um, to adopt because she'd always said to me, this woman would say, oh, you know, you, you can't look after her, but these, you know, I know some people who can do all that and da-da-da. So you were sort of brainwashed a bit back then mm. and told you were incapable of, you know, looking after a child. How are you going to do it on your own? How could you get work? You know, how could you cope with your child going to school and being called a bastard? Um, you know, all of that sort of thing. It was just, it was just horrible. It was just a horrible, horrible time. Do you keep in touch with, uh, with someone who would know her whereabouts as she grows up? 
Um, I know my mother went to visit her a couple of times. Did she tell you that at no. the time? She she did say she was going to visit her, um, but she didn't. She just said she's well looked after. That was it. And she said we will never talk about it again. Which was the way things were done then. That's the way things were done. So it was swept under the carpet. Yep. Yep, as if it didn't exist and the rest of my family were told I had pneumonia. Looking back now, how wrong was that that they were told a lie as large as that? Absolutely. Absolutely. But that back then was, so much was a life then of lies for people. That was that way, you know? You just didn't, you know, you grew up being told, you know, you don't let your right hand know what your left hand's doing and what will the neighbours think and, you know, don't do not do that because the neighbours will think you, you know, you're not a nice person. And I mean, all of that, you, you, you grew up with all of that brainwashing mm. of that, you know, and it, it was just extraordinary. It's taken me years... A lot of counsellors, a lot of psychiatrists, a lot of hard work um, to get through it. And one of the things that helped me was having a play written about it as well. Mm, so tell me about that. Um, your, your friends approached you to, to do yeah, that? Yeah. Well, I actually, one of my counsellors said to me, um, you know, you're in this industry. Maybe you could write a one-woman show or something mm. about this, you know. Mm. It, it would help you. And I thought, oh, maybe it might. And I went along to a friend of mine, Robbie Bishop, and I mm. said, oh, Rob, could you help me write this, you know? And I, I told her my story and she said, oh, God, she said, I'd love to write a play about it myself. Would, would you mind if I wrote it for you? Mm. I said, no. So um, she wrote the first draft and then they got the actors because uh, uh, Mike Bishop, was going to direct it, and so he got the actors, and we we sat around a table, and they read it, and then I would say, "Oh no, this happened. That wasn't right." right. And we did that about four times mm. before the final draft was done, and then it was um, put on at, at La Mama, um, and it played a three week season. Mm. And initially it took a little – and opening night, um, friends from women uh, in the same situation, from Vanish as myself, some people flew in from interstate and all that, held a candlelight vigil outside the theatre mm. um, for opening night for their children that were taken for adoption. How emotional was that? Oh, it was just extraordinary. It was just extraordinary. And then opening night, you know, I had friends and family and that there and that was a pretty emotional night as well. And I went to every performance for three weeks and it, it, it then played to packed houses. Um, and we even did a school show, which was a most extraordinary afternoon because I thought, oh, these 16, 17-year-olds are going to start laughing at some of the things in there, which they did initially... But then they they just all went quiet. Mm. And at the end they just really went, you know, and then Robbie got up and she said, and you know, about this story and she said, actually, she said, Jan's 
in the audience with you. And, you know, oh, well, then they they all came up and hugged me. And some of them came up and said, oh, my God, that's my mother's story. So this sort of thing just goes in waves and it escalates. It affects so many people that people do not realise. And I don't know, the reaction when that went to air that I got from that was extraordinary. I had people contacting me from all over Australia, people who I knew um, that I didn't know had a similar story from their mother, their grandmother, their aunt, their uncle, their sister or something or Mm. them were part of it. I was out for dinner one night and this woman came up to me, she was about my age, with another friend of hers and she said, oh, she said, I saw your Australian story. She said, I... She said, that's my story. She said, and I've never told it to anyone. She was just one. There's many thousands of women out there who've never, who've gone through what I've gone through and never told this story. And that is why the reason I told my story, because people needed to know what went on back then and how it's affected so many women, women's lives, Mm. that still um, do not say that they've had a child. Which really leads us on to, I mean, you've been busy with being involved in the Senate inquiry into forced adoptions. How did you get involved with that to begin with? Uh, Well, I was part of a a Vanish group, which is an organisation for um, unmarried mothers who've gone through all of that. Mm. And so quite a few of us um, flew to um, Canberra Mm. for that. And it was the most extraordinary... um, emotional time that actually we heard someone talking about it Mm. and that our stories had been accepted and believed because we felt for so many years nobody, and still to today, nobody really is interested in our side of the story. Nobody? Not really. Not really. No. Do Do you think that's going to change? I would hope so, and I think so. I'm ambassador for an organisation called Brave Foundation yeah. based in Tasmania, and they, um, uh, the government have just given them $10 million towards it, but they are making sure that young girls who get pregnant make sure they get an education mm. and that if, if their partner is still there that they, they can support them mm. through um, – having the child and and making sure that they can have the child and keep the child, they're educated and look after it. Mm. And I think that's a wonderful organisation and hopefully, you know, but even, you know, young girls have said to me when they're pregnant, people still look at them as if to say, oh, what are you doing at your age being pregnant? Mm. So the judgement. Judgement is still there. Mm. And mm. then being in Canberra, when, when that apology was delivered by... Um, oh. Julie Gillard, mm. how how did you feel? Do you think that, that that was like a weight off your shoulders in a way? Or? In, a, in a way, it certainly was. Um, it, it, I don't think the weight ever goes away, but it was a sense of being um, being believed and listened to. Right. Somebody had finally listened to us. When you think about yourself um, at that window ledge and you think if – if life had gone a different way, but you look at what you've achieved since, do you do you just do you think that you've had a fortunate life? Um, do you oh, think absolutely. that you've made the most of every opportunity because of how, um, I guess, in crisis you were? Look, I think that you know you go through those crises, and I think it really makes you a stronger person. Mm. 
Um, and it does. It gives you that extra drive, I mm. guess, to think, oh, my God, no, I, I look what I would have lost. Yes. You know, and look what, look what I've gained mm. from it. And, and that's where I, I feel for these young ones who feel they've got to take their lives for whatever reason or another. Mm. Um, you know, no, you may feel a bit down at the moment. But, you know, oh, my God, there's so much more out there you can achieve, mm. you know, if you step back from that window. Yes. Just step back from that window because, mm. hey, you know, there's so much to, to live for and, and achieve and all that, even though at the time you don't think so. Mm. You know, and I've certainly, certainly proven that. And so, look, what's the best bit of advice you can give to people who are going through their own personal crises um, and their, their black periods in life where they just they think that there's no hope in the world, no hope in the world? How do you even start to think about coming back from that? Well, it is hard because you feel nobody cares, um, nobody wants you, you're not loved, all of that sort of thing. Um, and it, it is a really, really difficult time. But, you know, these days there is help out there. Mm. It wasn't help back then. Yes. But there is help out there. And you, all you have to do is cry out for help. There mm. is someone to help you. Don't think you're on your own because you're never on your own. I mean, I know you feel like it. And I know sometimes I still feel like that and I get myself out of that frame of mind because mm. it's so easy to fall into. But there is help out there. And what does the future hold for you? I mean, like, for example, my, my folks are, are retired, but they're busier in retirement they, than they were when they were working. Mm, for, mm. for you, do you consider yourself retired no, or is no. it just an extension of your career that it's will go on forever? It's an extension of my career. I mean, um, I teach acting for television. Mm. Um, I do that quite a bit. Um I've probably pulled back a bit on that because I'm starting to sort of enjoy life a bit. <laughs> um, I love to travel. Um, and, you know, as I said, like two years ago, I went back on stage again. Mm. Um, I've gone back into doing a bit of acting, a bit of performing again. So, you know, whatever comes up, I'm, I'm, I'm ready to handle anything. I did a short film and, you know, all sorts of things. I mean, it's just it's life is there. Make the most of it. Jan, thank you so much. Like, I really appreciate your time. Oh, thank you. Um, you Luke, you've it's always been, been, been yeah. You've always been giving of your time, and and you know, I worked in different departments within Grundy yes. and Fremantle during my time there. But you always had a smiling face. Your door was always open. I could come and talk to you about anything and everything. So, I really appreciate the fact that you know you've given your time so freely um, this afternoon. And thank you for oh, appearing on the show. Oh well, thank you for having me. I feel very humbled. And we will be back next time on The Artiste. The Artiste is an original podcast series devised and hosted by me, Luke Gibson. It's produced by myself and Matt Gerber-Korn and is recorded, edited and mixed at Sonic Playground in South Melbourne by Ben Churchill and Matt. Music score by Robert Upwood. Find him at robertupwood.com.au. Cover art by Romy Sachs. Keep up to date with The Artiste by following us on Instagram and Facebook, The Artiste Podcast. The Artiste is a co-production between Peppermint Media and Sonic Playground.